Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. The title is The Coming Resurrection. He's using John chapter 5, the words of Jesus, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. We did the first half of this last time. Let's finish this wonderful message. He says, All that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Hear. Why, the the ear has, has gone. <laughs> a thousand years ago, a man was buried and his ear, <laughs> well, there's not the slightest relic of it left, all has vanished. Uh, shall that ear ever hear? <laughs> yes, for he that made it hear at the first wrought as great a wonder then as when he shall make it hear a second time. It needed a God to make the hearing ear of a newborn babe. And it shall need no more to renew the hearing ear the second time. Yes, the ear, so long lost in silence, shall hear. And what shall be the sound that shall startle that newly awakened and fresh-fashioned ear? It shall be the voice of the Son of God, the voice of Jesus Christ himself. Ah, my brethren, while this teaches us the stolidity of human nature, and how depraved the heart is, it also reminds you who are careless that there is no escape for you. If you will not hear the voice of Jesus now, you must hear it then. You may thrust those fingers into your ears today, but there will be no doing that in the day of the last trump. You must hear them. Oh, that you would hear now. You must hear the summons to judgment. God grant that you may hear the summons to mercy and become obedient and live. All that are in their graves shall hear his voice. Whoever they may have been, they shall become subject to the power of his omnipotent command and appear before his sovereign judgment seat. Note the next words, and shall come forth. That is to say, of course, that their bodies shall come out of the grave, out of the earth, or, or the water, or the air, or wherever else those bodies may be. But I think there is more than that intended by the words, shall come forth. It seems to imply manifestation, as though all the while men were here, and were when in their graves they were hidden and concealed. But as the voice of God in the thunder discovereth the forests, and maketh the hinds to calve, so the voice of God in resurrection shall discover the secrets of men and make them to bring forth their truest self into the light to be revealed to all. The hypocrite, masked villain as he is, is not discovered now. But when the voice of Christ soundeth, he shall come forth in a sense that will be horrible to him, deprived of all the ornaments of his masquerade, the wizard of his profession torn away. He shall stand before men and angels with the leprosy upon his brow, an object of universal derision, abhorred of God and despised of men. Ah, dear hearers, are you ready to come forth even now? Would you be willing to have your hearts read out? Would you wear them on your sleeve for all to see? Is not there much about you that would not bear the light of the sun? 
How much more will it not bear the light of him whose eyes are as a flame of fire, seeing all and testing all by trial which cannot err? Your coming forth on that day will be not only a reappearance from amidst the shadows of the sepulchre, but a coming forth into the light of heaven's truth which shall reveal you in meridian clearness. And then the text goes on to say that they shall come forth as those who have done good and those who have done evil. From which we must gather the next truth, that death makes no change in man's character and that after death we must not expect improvements to occur. He that is holy is holy still. He that is filthy is filthy still. They were, when they were put into the grave, men who had done good. They rise as men who have done good. Or they were, when they were interred, men who had done evil, and they rise as those that have done evil. Expect, therefore, no place for repentance after this life no opportunities for reformation, no further proclamations of mercy or doors of hope. It is now or never with you. Remember that. And note again that only two characters rise, for indeed there are only two characters who ever lived, and therefore two to bury and two to rise again, those who had done good and those who had done evil. Where were those of mingled character, whose conduct was neither good nor evil, or both? There were none such. You say, do not the good do evil? May not some who are evil still do good? I answer, he that doeth good is a man who, having believed in Jesus Christ and received the new life, doeth good in his new nature, and with his newborn spirit, with all the intensity of his heart. As for his sins and infirmities, uh, into which by reason of his old nature he falleth, these being washed away by the precious blood of Jesus are not mentioned in the day of account. And he rises up as a man who hath done good, his good remembered, but the evil washed away. As for the evil of whom it is asserted that they may do good, we answer, so they may do good in the judgment of their fellow men, and as towards their fellow mortals, but good towards God from an evil heart cannot proceed. If the fountain be defiled, every stream must be polluted also. Good is a word that may be measured according to those who use it. The evil man's good is, is good to you, his child, his wife, his friend, but he hath no care for God, no reverence, no esteem for the great lawgiver, Therefore that which may be good to you may be ill to God, because done for no right motive, even perhaps done with a wrong motive, so that the man is dishonoring God while he was helping his friend. God shall judge men by their works, but there shall be but two characters, the good and the evil. And this makes it solemn work for each man to know where he will be, and what has been the general tenor of his life, and what is a true verdict upon the whole of it? O oh, sirs, there are some of you who with all your excellences and moralities have never done good as God measures good, for you have never thought of God to honor him. You have never even confessed that you had dishonored him. In fact, you have remained proudly 
indifferent to God's judgment of you as a sinner, and you have set yourself up as being all you should be. How shall it be possible, while you disbelieve your God, that you could do anything that can please him? Your whole life is evil in God's sight, only evil. And as for you who fear his name, or trust you do, take heed unto your actions, I pray you, seeing that there are only those that have done good and those that have done evil. Make it clear to your conscience, make it clear to the judgment of those who watch you, though this is of less importance, and make it clear before God that your works are good, that your heart is right, because your outward conduct is conformed unto the law of God. I shall not keep you much longer in the exposition, except to notice that the mode of judging is remarkable. Those who search the scriptures know that the mode of judging at the last day will be entirely according to works. Will men be saved then for their works? No, by no means. Salvation is in every case the work and gift of grace, but the judgment will be guided by our works. It is due to those to be judged that they should all be tried by the same rule. Now, no rule can be common to saints and sinners except the rule of their moral conduct. And by this rule shall all men be judged. If God finds not in thee, my friend, any holiness of life whatever, neither will he accept thee. What, saith one, what of the dying thief then? There was the righteousness of faith in him and it produced all the holy acts which circumstances allowed. The very moment he believed in Christ, he avowed Christ and spoke for Christ, and that one act stood as evidence of his being a friend of God, while all his sins were washed away. May God grant you grace, so to confess your sins and believe in Jesus, that all your transgression may be forgiven you. There must be some evidence of your faith. Before the assembled host of men, there shall be no evidence given of your faith fetched from your inward feelings, but the evidence shall be found in your outward actions. It will still be, I was a hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Take heed then as to practical godliness, and abhor all preaching which would make sanctity of life to be a secondary thing. We are justified by faith, but not by a dead faith. The faith which justifies is that which produces holiness, and without holiness no man shall see the Lord. See then the two classes into which men are divided, and the stern rule by which God shall judge them, and judge yourselves that ye be not condemned with the wicked. The different dooms of the two classes are mentioned in the text. One shall rise to the resurrection of life. This does not mean mere existence. They shall both exist, and both exist forever. But life means, when properly understood, happiness. Power, activity, privilege, capacity. In fact, it is a term so comprehensive that I, I should need no small time to expound all it means. There is a death in life which the ungodly shall have, but ours shall be a life in life, a true life, 
not existence merely, but existence in energy, existence in honor, existence in peace, existence in blessedness, existence in perfection. This is the resurrection unto life. As for the ungodly, there is a resurrection to damnation, by which their bodies and souls shall come manifestly under the condemnation of God. To use our Savior's word, they shall be damned. Oh, what a resurrection. And yet we cannot escape from it if we neglect the great salvation. If we could lay us down and sleep and never wake again, oh, what a blessing it were for an ungodly man. If that grave could be the last of him, and like a dog he he should never start again from slumber, what a blessing. But it is a blessing that is not yours and never can be. Your souls must live and your body must live. Oh, fear him, I pray you, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Oh, Roman numeral two now. Our time is almost spent, but I must occupy the remaining minutes in drawing lessons from the text. The first is the lesson of adoring reverence. If it be so that all the dead shall rise at the voice of Christ, let us worship him. What a savior was he who bled upon the tree. How gloriously is he who was despised and rejected, now exalted. O brethren, if we could even get but to see the skirts of this truth, that he shall raise all the dead out of their graves, if we did but begin to perceive its grandeur of meaning, methinks we should fall at the Savior's feet, as John did when he said, I fell at his feet as dead. Oh, what amazing power is thine, my Lord and Master! What homage must be due to thee! All hail, Emmanuel! Thou hast the keys of death and of hell. My soul loves and adores thee, thou ever great enthroned prince, the wonderful, the counselor, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Well, the next lesson is consolation for our wounded spirits concerning our departed friends. We never mourn with regard to the souls of the righteous. They are forever with the Lord. The only mourning that we permit among Christians concerns the body, which is blighted like a withered flower. When we read at funerals that, that famous chapter in the epistle unto the Corinthians, we find it in, in it no comfort concerning the immortal spirit, for it is not required. But we find much consolation with regard to that which is sown in dishonor, but shall be raised in glory. Thy dead men shall live, that decaying dust shall live again. Weep not, as though thou hadst cast thy treasure into the sea, where thou couldst never find it. Thou hast only laid it by in a casket, whence thou shalt receive it again brighter than before. Thou shalt look again with thine own eyes into those eyes which have spoken love to thee so often, but which are now closed in sepulchral darkness. Thy child shall see thee yet again. Thou shalt know thy child. The selfsame form shall rise. Thy departed friend shall come back to thee, and having loved his Lord as thou dost, thou shalt rejoice with him in the land where they die no more. 
It is but a short parting. It will be an eternal meeting. Forever with the Lord, we shall also be forever with each other. Let us comfort one another then with these words. The last lesson is that of self-examination. If we are to rise, some to rewards and some to punishments, what shall be my position? What shall be my position? Let each conscience ask. How do you feel, my hearers, in the prospect of rising again? Does the thought give you any gleam of joy? Does it not create a measure of alarm? If your heart trembles at the tidings, how will you bear it when the real fact is before you and not the thought merely? What has your life been? If by that life you shall be judged, what has it been? What has been its prevailing principle up till now? Have you believed God? Do you live by faith upon the Son of God? I know you are imperfect, but are you struggling after holiness? Do you desire to honor God? This shall rule the judgment of your life. What was its end, its aim, its its bent, its uh, object? Imperfection there has been, but has there been sincerity? Has grace, divine grace, that washes sinners in the blood of Christ proved itself to be in you by alienating you from the sins you loved and leading you to the duties that you once neglected? I will ask you another question. If you do not feel happy at the thought of yourself, are you quite peaceful concerning the raising of all others? Are you prepared to meet before God those whom you have sinned with among men? It is a question worthy of the sinner's thought, of what must be the terrors of men and women who will have to meet the companions of their sins. Was not this at the bottom of Dives wishing Lazarus to be sent back to the world to warn his five brethren, lest they should come into this place of torment? Was not he afraid to see them there because of their recriminations that would increase his misery? It would be a horrible thing for a man who has been a debauched villain to rise again and confront his victims whom his lusts dragged down to hell. How will he quail as he hears them lay their damnation at his door and curse him for his lasciviousness? Oh man, your Your sin is not dead and buried. And the sinner whom you joined hands with in iniquity shall rise to witness against you. The crime, the guilt, the punishment, and the guilty one shall alike live again. And you shall live forever in remorse to rue the day in which you thus transgressed. Another question. If it will be terrible to many to see the dead rise again, how will they endure to see him? the judge himself, the Savior. Of all men that ever lived, he is the one that you have need to be the most afraid of because it is he whom this day you ought most to love, but whom you forget. How many times from this pulpit have I pleaded with you to yield yourselves to Jesus Christ and how frequently have you given him a flat denial It may be some of you have 
not quite done that, but you have postponed your decision and said, When I have a more convenient season, I will send for thee. When he cometh, how will you answer him? Man, how will you answer him? How will you excuse yourselves? You would not have him as a savior, but you must have him as your judge to pronounce your sentence. You despised his grace, but you cannot escape his wrath. If you will but look to Jesus now, you shall find salvation in that glance. But in refusing so to do, you heap up for yourself wrath when that terrible but inevitable glance shall be yours, of which the prophet says, All the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. O spurn him not then. Despise not the crucified. I pray you trample not upon his blood, but come to him that so when you see him on his throne, you may not be afraid. Beloved, I might have continued to ask more questions, but I shall close with these two. One of the best ways by which to learn what will be our portion in the future is to inquire what is our portion in the present. Have you life now? I mean spiritual life the life that grieves for sin, the life that trusts a Savior? If so, you shall certainly have the resurrection to life. On the other hand, have you condemnation now? For he that believeth not is condemned already. Are you an unbeliever? Then you are condemned now. You shall suffer the resurrection to damnation. How could it be otherwise? Seek then that you may possess the life of God now by faith, and you shall have it forever in fruition. Escape the condemnation now, and you shall escape from damnation hereafter. God bless you all with the abundance of his salvation for Christ's sake. Amen. This message is from 12 Sermons on the Resurrection. That's a collection of Spurgeon's Sermons in the Charles H. Spurgeon Library, published by the Baker Book House, 1968. I do ask that you look around this website before you leave. I think you're going to find some things, other things that will bless you. But meanwhile, this is the Hackberry House of Cho Chosun, and I uh, would like you to know that this audio is being released on July 14. 2022. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.